I'd ask that you would turn to John chapter 3, to the latter part of John chapter 3, the end of John 3, beginning in verse 22, and if you don't have a Bible, we'd ask you to take, invite you to one of the black Bibles in front of you, it should be in one of the chairs in front of you, and take it, and you'll, if you don't own a Bible, we, we encourage you to take it and keep it, and make it your own, hope it would be a help to you. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, we're going to read to the end of the chapter in just a minute. So, suppose you have, and I think you do, most of you have this, suppose you have a child or a friend or a spouse, or someone close to you, someone you love, who is away from Christ. They're not Christians. They're lost. You have a burden to pray for them, and you pray for them fervently, day and night, for his or her salvation. You shared your faith with him or her, and you do it regularly, and you care for him him or her, and you cannot stop thinking about and praying because you love and care, and you keep praying night and day, God, would you please, you dream of the day for years and years when you could come and sit with that person and pray with them and hear them call on the name of the Lord and be saved and receive forgiveness. And one day it happens, but they go to someone else for help. And for another person prays with them and become that other person becomes their spiritual mentor and discipler, helping that person you've prayed for and cared for for so long to come to Jesus. Now, what would your response be? Envy or glorious, unfettered joy? And what would you say to the person and about their motives, if anything but utter joy and rejoicing is their response. Or imagine God has put it in your heart, and I pray he does, to pray for spiritual revival in this church and in our country and in our world. You pray to God and you fast weekly and you earnestly and fervently and sincerely pray and ask God God, would you please pour out your spirit upon this church in a remarkable way? Would you pray so, I pray so much that you would cause every individual in this church to be awakened with a spiritual life and vigor like they've never experienced before, as though you are right next to them and they would love you with all their heart and you would take those who are professing Christians but not real and have never really been wakened but they're actually falsely assured and they would be raised from the dead spiritually and it would be like, what happened to you? I don't even recognize you. And for the people we have been praying for, people that seem like unlikely converts, they start getting saved. We pray for all of those things. Revival in this church. Revival in our community. Revival in our country. And you prayed earnestly, God, pour out your spirit. And God does. But not in your church, but the one down the road. He answers you. But he says, I'm going to do it 
at First Baptist in Fenton. <laughs> Praise God. And at the Rock and at the Village and in Grand Blank and Swartz Creek. What is our response? Is it, I was asking for here. It was here, God. I think you heard the wrong address. This morning, we're going to see the difference between a group of envious disciples and a joyful and a joyful disciple. And the secret between the difference. Would you look at verses 22 through the end of the chapter of John 3? After this, Jesus, Jesus had just left Nicodemus, probably was in the city of Jerusalem, which is in Judea. But Jesus and his disciples go into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, we're going to learn in chapter 4, Jesus was not baptizing. It was his disciples doing it, he was, but he was the leader of this, this new group of baptizers. Verse 23, John, that's John the Baptist, was also baptizing at Aen near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. John was saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and turn from your sins and look to God and show works of repentance. <coughs> and says here a little note, for John had not yet been put in prison. He would be put in prison because he was, too bold. he was faithfully bold and Herod imprisoned him and he lost his head. 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John, John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew over purification. They're talking about these Old Testament rites of purification and how they should do them, probably because they saw baptism going on and saying, hey, it's dealing with water. Let's talk about this. And in verse 26, and they came to John, that's the disciples of John, and they said to their, their master, to their leader, to John, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. There's a tone of envy here. There's a tone of exaggeration because not everybody had left and gone to Jesus. That's who he's talking about. He doesn't even use Jesus' name. These disciples of John go, John, you know that guy that you were with across the Jordan? He's across there and he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. What's John's response? Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourself bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's me, who stands and hears him rejoices and greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And then John, the author John, the apostle, probably adds this commentary, verses 31 through 36. 
He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, there are two types of disciples that we see in this passage. Disciples are people who follow another. They learn from another. They are being discipled and they are following another. This is a description of these 12 and others who follow Jesus. They learn from him. This is a description also of what a true Christian is. A Christian, a true believer, is someone who has become a disciple of Jesus. And here we find two kinds of disciples. There is an envious disciple. And these envious disciples have a misplaced allegiance. And there is a joyful disciple who has a well-placed allegiance. If you're saved, you are called to follow Jesus and you are to be a disciple. You have followed him to the cross and found your sins forgiven and you received his gift of eternal life. Having believed on him and called upon his name. And if that's real, you'll keep believing and following him. Here are the two types. Number one, do you, I want you to see the envious disciple in the first verses, starting in, the, in that first paragraph. But in really in verse 25 and 26, I pointed that out in my reading. You see the envious disciples, those who had a misplaced allegiance. Look with me at 25 and 26 again. There's a discussion that arises between John, John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And maybe the subject of Jesus comes up and they go to John and they say, John, this guy, and they don't even mention Jesus' name. Do you remember the one that you bore witness about? Look, he's baptized and everybody's going to him. And... I think that we can see, especially because of the way that John is going to respond, that John hears and sees in their tone this envious exaggeration. All are going to him. All are leaving. All are leaving here to go somewhere else. Where are they going? And there's a whining tone in their voice. Because John, I thought we were with the in crowd. I thought we were in the spiritually right place to be. We're with you, John, and we're repenting of our sins. So what is John going to do? We're going to see that in just a minute. But I want us to reflect for a minute how easily we could be like these disciples of John who are envious because something's happening and it's not where they are. They thought they were right and actually their motives are exposed that maybe their allegiance isn't the God of John the Baptist, but it is themselves or something else. And that can happen in our lives. Christian, it is easy for us to say that we are of Christ and that he has our devotion. Friends, if you're a Christian, 
If you have called upon the name of the Lord, if you say, say that, you're a, a brother or a sister in Christ. This means that you are called to a complete allegiance to Jesus Christ. You are to completely be devoted to him, not just one little sliver of your life or a major sliver of your life or a large piece, but everything is to be under that. And yet we find ourselves thinking that might be the case or ought to be the case, but in reality it's not. These disciples of John realize they have, or at least we, as we read this passage, go, they have a misplaced allegiance. They don't get it. They're bothered that all are going to Jesus, the Son of God, the light of the world, the life the, we could name all these things. The one who's come down from heaven. The words who has, the one who has and brings eternal life. The one who's going to be lifted up. And everyone who looks on him will live. The one who brings the new birth. All of these things. Why in the world would they care if they're leaving John the Baptist and going to Jesus? We would say. And yet we can do that very thing. We can find ourselves in the name of Jesus serving but in reality, having a misplaced allegiance practically in our lives. Christian, it's very easy for us to say we're in Christ, but we're actually not. We can find ourselves going about our lives and parents, our allegiances in, in word is God and his people, but in reality, it can be the athletic development of our kids and our ambitions for our kids that somewhere up apart from radical devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or it could be that our commitment and devotion is to our retirement and to comforts and to pleasures that surround us, things that we, that we reveal by our real actions is what our real passion is. It could be our hobbies or our camping or our vacations. If those things are the things that draw on the, our decision-making and keeping us from being nourished with God's people week after week, being part of the family of God and sharing the gospel and bringing our neighbors and our family into Christ, we might... We do need to ask ourselves, where is our allegiance? It's possible that we could pray and we can evangelize and we can give to the church and we could be a church member and we could be a volunteer on one of the ministry teams here at the church. We could do all of those things. It's possible to be involved in all of those things and have a misplaced devotion. Sadly, far too often, people come to Jesus and they're even explained, Would you, you, you just need to be saved. And if you get saved, it's gonna, you have mental illness, you have all this depression and anxiety. He's the joy of life, so you just need to surrender to Jesus and he's going to come in. You, your finances are a mess. You need Jesus. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the great shepherd you shall not want. You need to come to Jesus. You need to come to Jesus. I know your parenting issues... It's a mess in your home. You need Jesus because Jesus is going to answer all of that mess. He is 
the, the life and the light of all, and all of those things are true. But what we can often find ourselves doing is we invite people in, and if we ourselves come to Christ, we think, we never th- put it in these words, I want Jesus because Jesus is going to come and he is going to fix my kingdom. My kingdom pursuit of my comforts, my ambitions, my sense of wellness, my sense of peace, and my sense of who I am in this world. I want him to come in and I want him to fix all of those things so that I will feel better because he he's promises to do those things, I guess. In reality, he's not our king. He's our servant coming in and just doing that. That's not what God does, and that's not what the good news of the gospel does. The good news of the gospel says, and it happens when the new birth happens, because Jesus says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. He comes and he shows his, shines his bright light upon Jesus on our hearts to see Jesus as he really is. And we fall at our knees and says, nothing else mattered. Yes, I love my children. Yes, I love comfort. But none of that matters other than I need Jesus Christ. I need him. I, there, I'm not going to go any other place. I want him for who he is and I, want, I must follow him because he is the word of life and there is no other. And it is a miracle done in our heart. These disciples of John are focused on sideways things and they're not seeing the main thing. And how often can that be in our lives? How often can that be? Christian friends, oh, may we deliver a message that is faithful, calling people to the glory of Jesus Christ. He invites you. And I invite you, if you're not a Christian, I invite you to his son, to look to Jesus, God's son. He is glory and he is grace. He is the life and light. He is the one who brings eternal life, as this passage is going to say. He is God. Come in flesh, and he comes, and he is from heaven, and he is the only answer. But oh, it is very easy for us to have a misplaced allegiance and think that we're going to just use Jesus to just advance our same allegiances, and that allegiance is to something else, which is usually ends up ourselves. You know, once again, this passage will remind us as we reflect on John's disciples to go, oh, Pastor Daniel. Oh, elders and deacons and wives and members of faith, church, and Christians. Oh, God, forgive me. I so easily can go that direction. I can so easily not forget about what the main thing is. And I can get so sidetracked and I could have my allegiances going towards other things. Oh, God, forgive me. Draw me to you. Because I want to see that in contrast to the joyful disciple. Do you see the joyful disciple? It's John the Baptist in this passage. We don't get more, a lot more of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. We've already seen him in chapter 1. And here in chapter 3, he pops up again. Do you see the joyful disciple? He's, he has a well-placed allegiance. They say to him, look, every, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. And we find in verse 27, John answers, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him 
from heaven. Now, if you don't go away with anything else from this sermon but that phrase, would you just... Would you just like dig into verse 27 for a minute? Maybe underline it, go back to it. Verse 27 is worth your Sunday morning. It it will draw your heart. If you really meditate on this verse, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now that is a a maxim. That is a, a universal truth that applies to everyone at all times that he comes and he has a specific application. He's not changing the subject and just giving a proverb there. He's not just saying, I'm going to change the subject and I'm going to talk about a God truth. He's got a point in why he brings verse 27. But all of us, we could stop and reflect on this. A person, you, put your name there. I, Daniel, I cannot, have not, or ever will receive even one thing unless it is given from, to me from heaven. My life, my gifts, my breath, my job, my family, my friends, my opportunities, everything, nothing comes unless it comes from heaven and is received. What a humbling, transforming reality that all of us are called. And when we become a Christian, it is those kinds of insights that set the perspective and shine light on all that we do. It leads us to a type of repentance. It leads us to do a type of humility that says, Oh God, how could I live a prayerless life? How foolish of me. It it means that none of us can ever, ever brag about being saved. We can never say, "I, I chose him in my own strength. He had nothing to do with it. God had nothing to do with it. No, we say, I never would have received him and trusted in him and received eternal life unless he mercifully scooped me out of the gutter and saved me. Yes, I sought him. Yes, I researched, but he was the one that, set me on that journey. Oh, I look back and he has loved me. If we read the Bible, we see I was dead in my sins. I was deader than Lazarus who was in the grave for four days. In John chapter 10, and Jesus raises him out. And he said to me, live. And he gave me the new birth. He removed my sin, at least the punishment for sin, even though there's still a lot going on in there. And he has given me his spirit, all things. And John is going to respond as a really joyful disciple, free of envy. He's going to just go and live a very short life, maybe in his early 30s, not wasted. It wasn't a tragedy. He's going to live in his early 30s, and he's going to die And he's going to be really joyful because what matters is what has been given him. And he's going to say to them, what matters, not not one thing is given to us unless it's from heaven. And he's about to say, all that I've been given, which caused a lot of followers to follow me for a time. And I created quite a circus and a lot of people, even the, the Sanhedrin came and questioned me. They all came and there was a big movement here. It came from God. God, and you can read about it in John 1, 
God bore witness to me so that I would bear witness to Jesus so that all would believe in Jesus, so that all would look at me. And so whenever my disciples came, they came by and I said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look away from me. Look to him. That's what my life is all about. What do I have? I have no followership other than that's meant to point me elsewhere. And friends, we can apply that in our lives. Our freedom finds when we realize everything we have, our family, our life, our gifts, our salvation, our money, our talents, or anything, and they're custom made. Even what seems like very little to you is for His glory and for the name of Jesus Christ. And that is the only way we will ever have joy when we realize it never came from us and it's not about us. And what we find, John is completely free from the illusion that he earned anything or his, he was bigger than anything else. He's, he's going to say to them, don't you remember what I told you? Verse 28, don't you remember what I told you? I'm just the messenger. And he is the Christ. And he, verse 29, he says, I, my joy is overwhelmed. He set, uses this analogy. He says, I am the friend of the bridegroom. And he's pulling from the Old Testament analogy. Jesus is the great bridegroom. He is the coming one who comes and he's going he's to make Israel, or the new Israel, or the church, those who come to Christ. He is going to make them his bride. And he says, I am the groom. And John the Baptist says, I don't want the bride. I'm not going for the church. I want the church to go to him. I want people to be saved and go to him. He's the bride. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. This idea, I'm the best man. The best man doesn't go towards the bride. The best man stands and goes, I want my best friend, the groom, to get honor and be glorified on this glorious occasion. That is the perspective of John. That is to be the perspective of every pastor, of every elder, of every Christian for us to say, it is not about me. I am the friend of the bridegroom. I want Jesus to be glorified. If I am made less of, it is not, I, I want to serve and I want to give. I want to, it is to be a mindset of members in a church to give sacrificially and not care if anybody knows it. To give with your hands in such a way that nobody thanks you and it's okay because you weren't serving for them primarily. You definitely weren't serving for their praise. You were serving for another priority. Do you see the well prioritized, well-aligned allegiance or devotion that John the Baptist has in these verses. Oh, they are glorious. As John says, at the end, maybe some of the most, definitely the most famous words that John ever said, as he says, he, look at verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, Jesus, all are going to him. Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus is the savior of the world. I'm supposed to just fade out of the sunset. That's what I was here for, and it is glorious. That's what I was meant for. You and I were not meant to be the purpose of your story because it's not about your story. Your life isn't about your story. Your life is about Jesus Christ. Your life, it is about him increasing 
and you decreasing. And that is and will be the only way you will have true joy. You are not meant to bear the weight of it being about you. Oh, the, the discomfort of our pride, the pain and anguish of seeking to look so good to this world or to protect our rights or our way, and it's not about us. Now, I want you to see, though, the incompa- finally the incomparable master Because the incomparable master is Jesus. And he is the object and the source of of John's well-placed allegiance, his devotion. And it is really the secret of, of where in the world could we actually get this? How can we be joyful disciples, not envious disciples? It is falling in love with and being overwhelmed with this incomparable master, Jesus Christ. Look with me at verses 31 through 36. In these verses, John is, reflects. John gives this passage. He said, he who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthy, earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above and above all. And he is saying, I want you to see his place of origin Jesus is incomparable. He is the one we are to surrender to. His place of origin, he is from heaven. He's from above. One cannot receive anything unless it comes from heaven. He's the real thing. Why would I look for anything else? He is the source of all divine revelation, the source of my life and my truth. We will seek it in self-help books, in college degrees, We will seek it in career advancement or just feeling good about I have children and they're doing good and I feel good about myself. And our life does not find its significance in those wonderful pursuits that are a gift when they're rightly aligned. But when they're wrongly aligned, they take the place of Jesus and they become monsters to our lives. We think they will bring us joy and they swallow and they suck that joy right out because they were never meant to bear the weight of a joy-producing life. They are to be tools that are within the hands of being surrendered, saying, why would I go anywhere else? John is going to say, it's from Jesus And Jesus is from heaven, and you are meant to be wired towards heaven. You are made for heaven. You are made to know and be be connected to heaven. And God loved you so much that he sent from heaven his son who had come, who became a man. And from heaven, you may have life. From heaven, you may have eternal life. From heaven, you have God's word and message. Every good gift and every good perfect gift comes from above. James says, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And he's going to say, and it's also his message. And as we continue to study the gospel of John, may we just look and never get over his words. His message is our life. Look at verse 32 through 34. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He's, saying, he's talking about Jesus now. Jesus bears witness to what he's seen and heard, what he's been in heaven. Jesus ascended, came down from heaven. 
He's now, he's the only one that has been in heaven and he's gonna declare God's words and he's gonna say, and yet no one receives his testimony. That sounds like chapter one, verse 11, when he says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But then it switches the next verse, but to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Here he says, yet no one receives him. It seems like it because they're turning away from him. But whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, is is sure of this, that God is true. They know that Jesus is speaking the truth. Jesus is from God, and everything that Jesus says can be banked upon. It is trustworthy. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Jesus is greater than any prophet any priest, or any king of the Old Testament. He is an eyewitness that has been in heaven, and he speaks the truth from God. He utters God's very words, and because he has the authority of God. It says at the last part of 43, for he gives the Spirit without measure. What he's saying here is Jesus has come on earth, and he is the only one, the only true prophet, the only true king, the only true priest who the Spirit has come upon him. The Spirit came upon Moses, but it was with measure. The Spirit came on Daniel and gave him revelations in the old prophetic books of what was to come, but it was with a measure. It was with limits. He came to King David and gave him mighty power as a king, but it was with limits and measure. But God, the almighty God of heaven, sent his own Son, who is God, to come and to speak and to reveal and to teach and to do and to conquer the enemy. And it was without measure. It was without limits. It was with utter glory. So that we could say, and he could say at the end of this passage, something that is absolutely crazy unless Jesus is the absolute king with all authority worth us listening to. Whoever believes in the Son in everything he says, everything he promises, everything he's going to do, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We're so used to those words. They're like, oh, I've heard that a million times. Some of you, you haven't heard it a million times. This is one of your first times. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You and I need eternal life. And it starts when we believe, it begins already in our lives. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. What this passage says is that Jesus has come to earth, and John the Baptist wants his disciples and wants us, God wants us to see from this story is that we are to listen and say our allegiance is to be completely on the Lord Jesus Christ who is the king, who is the complete divider of all things. It all depends. Do you believe on him and obey him or do you disbelieve him and disobey him? On one side is eternal life And one side is eternal death. 
and condemnation under the wrath of God, which, by the way, is your status if you're not believing in Him. You are already under the wrath of God. And oh, but the point of this and the point of John being written is for everyone to believe on the Son and live. The type of allegiance that you and I are called to that John had that was joyful, that says, yeah. And and we read the story and go, he hadn't been put in prison yet. Because we all read the story and go, he's going to go to prison. And if we read in the other Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we'll go, and he's going to lose his head. He's going to die a young man. And and he's going to be with God forever because his life was about something way better than the temporary good things of this world. But when done without allegiance to Christ, are only feeding eternal misery and pain. John the Baptist points us to he must increase. And the question to each one of us is, is Jesus, is he the object of our believing? Is he the object of our obeying? We, we don't, those aren't two different, those aren't like completely disconnected things, believing and obeying. We obey because we believe him. We obey because we trust him. We believe that everything he tells us to do is good for us. And then we trust him because he would never command us to do something. He says, believe, repent of your sins, turn to me, surrender your life to me and look to me. Where's your allegiance? Faith church, friend, is it to yourself or is it and to your glory? And do you desire to make much of yourself? Or has he freed you? Having seen that he is the only way from heaven. He is the one whose words are life. He is the one of authority. Why would you go elsewhere? Is it to the incomparable Christ who brings joy to all who bow before him? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. As bread sustains physical life, so Christ sustains us. He says, I am the light of the world. To a world lost in darkness, Christ offers himself as the true guide. I am the door to the sheep, he's going to say in John 10. And Jesus protects his sheep and he leads them and protects them as a shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Death is not the final word for those who are in Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would would give us and show us tokens of eternal life. Oh God, I pray that eternal life would be ours and we would experience it as we have believed upon you, and if we've believed upon you, our allegiance is to you. That is part of our eternal life. And I pray that for someone in this room that has not yet called upon the Lord and given their allegiance to him and believed on him, they would do that this morning. And if they ha- if, and then there are many others here that have, but our allegiance has, has strayed and been divided and has been now misplaced. And I pray that you'd turn us to you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.